Good evening, everyone. I'm going to do that again for mic purposes, but good evening, everyone. There we go. How's everyone doing? It's great to have you at the Rothko Chapel. We're just honored, privileged to have you here this evening, and what a great night it is. You know, that fall weather is starting to feel like fall, and that always does something for I know a Houstonian and visitors, and it's just great to have you here. Uh, just a couple of little uh, technical notes. We'd ask if you would, please turn off your cell phones. Uh, I said the other night, you're actually in a cloister. You're being cloistered. Um, but turn off your cell phones or at least mute them. That would be great. And also, if you could uh, refrain from taking pictures, uh, we will have a photographer. Things will be posted if you'd like to see that afterwards. First thing I'd like to do tonight is uh, give you a little background to the lecture this evening. Um, now in its second year, the Francis Tarleton Sissy Farenthold Endowed Lecture in Peace, Social Justice, and Human Rights, presented in partnership with the Rappaport Center uh, from the University of Texas Law School, is designed to inspire audiences to act creatively in response to the greatest human rights challenges of the 21st century. Named in honor of Sissy Farenthold, the lecture is clearly in line with her own history of exposing and responding to injustices and inequality wherever they may be uh, as both a public servant and as a citizen. The lecture series brings to Austin and Houston internationally renowned scholars, activists, and politicians who will inspire their audiences to think and act creatively to respond to some of the challenges that we face in our communities today. Writer, journalist, and professor Mark Danner gave the inaugural lecture in 2015 at UT School of Law. Now, I've got to tell you, putting on a lecture of this magnitude in this event is something that involves a lot of people. So my other task this evening is to thank a lot of folks, not always all by name, but at least by classification, that helped to make this evening possible. First of all, what I'd like to do is say special thanks to Sissy Farenthold for letting us honor her and put her name to this event. As you all may know, Sissy has had a long history with the Rothko Chapel, served as board chairwoman uh, on the board of directors, been a great supporter, and is also the glue that also helps bind and bring together the folks at the Rappaport Center. So we have this mutual relationship, and in that spirit, I'd also like to recognize tonight Karen Engel and Daniel Brinks, who are the co-directors of the Rappaport Center. Uh, where are Karen? And you could stand. Yeah, come on, there you go. And I also want to say special thanks to um, Rappaport staff, Billy uh, Chandler, and to my colleague, uh, Ashley Clemmer, uh, because they really put the legs, the heart, the feet into this uh, evening. So thank you all for the hard work on making this happen. Appreciate it. And also, I want to lift up the board of directors from the Rothko Chapel, the advisory board, all the supporters of the Rappaport Center, because it's together that we can do this work. So give them a big hand for all their leadership, please. Thank you. 
So tonight we gather under the theme, Yes, Justice, Yes, Peace, the role of art in confronting inequality. Questions that will be considered this evening include, how does art in its many forms help us to be more empathetic and open us to move more clearly to hear, see, touch, feel, and understand the ravages of injustice and inequality? How does art help us change patterns of individual and corporate behavior that further the cause of both justice and peace? What is our responsibility to support artists in their role as social commentators and voice givers to those often who have no voice? In essence, how do we collectively join under the banner of Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and work together to ensure, and I quote, everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression, freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information in ideas through any media, regardless of frontiers. Thankfully, tonight, we have two very learned, gifted, dedicated people to help us explore these and other issues this evening. So it's my privilege this evening to present to you our speakers. Darren Walker is no stranger to many of you here in this room and to Houston and around the world. Darren is the president of the Ford Foundation, the nation's second largest philanthropy, and for two decades has been a leader in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors. He led the philanthropy committee that helped bring a resolution to the city of Detroit's historic bankruptcy and chairs the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Prior to joining Ford, he was vice president of the Rockefeller Foundation, where he managed to rebuild New Orleans initiative after Hurricane Katrina. In the 1990s, as COO of Harlem's largest community development organization, the Abyssinian Development Corporation, Darren oversaw a comprehensive revitalization program, resulting in over 1,000 new units of housing, Harlem's first commercial development in 20 years, and New York's first public school built and managed by a community organization. He had a decade-long career in international law and finance at Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton, and UBS. He serves as a trustee of Carnegie Hall, New York City Ballet, the High Line, the Arcus Foundation, and PepsiCo. Darren was ex educated exclusively in public schools, and in 2009, he received the Distinguished Alumnus Award the highest honor given to any uh, graduate by his alma mater, the University of Texas at Austin. In 2016, Time Magazine named him to its annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and is a recipient of 10 honorary degrees. Mr. Walker, welcome to the Rothko Chapel. Joining Darren this evening is Professor Sarah Lewis, our chief conversationalist tonight, who will help us engage in just a few minutes. Uh, Dr. Lewis is a best-selling author, curator, and an assistant professor at Harvard University. Dr. Lewis is the author of the Los Angeles Times bestseller, The Rise, Creativity, The Gift of Failure, and The Search for Mystery, published by Simon & Schuster, 
which has been translated into now at least six languages. Um, her essays on race, contemporary art, and culture have been published in many journals, as well as the New York Times, The New Yorker, Art Forum, Art in America, and in publications for the Smithsonian, the Museum of Modern Art in Rizzoli. She is the guest editor of Aperture Magazine's issue dedicated to the theme of vision and justice, the topic of her first course at Harvard University and the related exhibition at the Harvard Art Museum that is running right now through January of 2017. Dr. Lewis is a frequent speaker at many universities and conferences. She received her bachelor's degree from Harvard University, a master of philosophy from Oxford University, and her PhD from Yale University. Before joining the faculty at Harvard, she held curatorial positions at the Museum of Modern Art, New York, and the Tate Modern in London. She also served as a critic at Yale University School of Art. She is a trustee of Creative Time, the Sukuni Graduate Center, and Brearley School, and the Andy Warhol Foundation of the Visual Arts. Dr. Lewis, also welcome to the Rothko Chapel. And now with uh, the stage is yours, Mr. Walker. <clears throat> Thank you very much, very, very much, David, for that very kind introduction. And good evening, everyone. What a joy to be in this room to celebrate the incomparable, the indefatigable, the inimitable, legendary, <laughs> Sissy Farenthold. So, Sissy, you have been an inspiration to me and countless other people around the world. In many ways, Sissy, you are a Lone Star North Star guiding our higher angels towards progress, no matter what the barriers may be. From the time you were in the Texas House, when you fought for economic opportunity for Mexican-Americans and African-Americans, and women and children who were poor, to your fights for human rights around the world, whether it was through Helsinki Watch, or the Institute for Policy Studies, or that peace tent in Nairobi. And let's not forget your time as a university president at Wells College in New York and your service to this great, remarkable institution, the Rothko Chapel. I want to thank you, Sissy. And what is even more remarkable is that this woman turned 90 yesterday. And so it is indeed a pleasure for me to be with all of you on this special occasion, this magical place called the Rothko Chapel. It is indeed a sacred place where so many spiritual leaders and Nobel laureates and people from around the world have traveled to pray, 
to meditate and to reflect. This is a crown jewel. It was the vision of a remarkable family, the Manil family and their philanthropy affixed right here in this chapel. At so many, in so many ways, this is the intersection of art and social justice in this city and in the world. And the relationship here, the interplay between art and justice, the extraordinary symbiosis that this chapel embodies, that's what I wanna to talk to you about on this special occasion. Let me begin by saying that we have to also talk about another special woman on this occasion. And her name was Dominique de Manil. She once described how some people feel when they take in this chapel, as it charms and challenges and charges them. Here's what she said, and I'm quoting. They feel plunged into the night. Indeed, it is the night, but not quite. Even in the dim light, purplish color slowly emerges from the darkness. It is pre-dawn. This description feels so apt for this place. It's so appropriate for this moment we find ourselves in as a nation and as a world. Right now, our country and the world can feel plunged into the night, into the darkness. All you've got to do is turn on the news to see the darkness. We feel the darkness when we see the videos of police violence against African-American men. We see the darkness when we hear that police officers have been killed in Dallas, Texas while defending peaceful protesters. And we see the darkness when entire religious groups are denigrated because terrorism perpetrated by a few extreme fanatical minorities is blamed on an entire religion. And we see it when immigrants and refugees are vilified. We see the darkness of fear and hate wielded as a weapon to divide us. And of course, there is also our own ignorance, our own ignorance, which keeps us in the dark and prevents us from confronting the uncomfortable truths about privilege and injustice and inequality in our daily lives. Houston is one of America's great cities. Yet even in Houston, we see some of this darkness. Yes, this is one of our nation's most diverse cities, and Houstonians are particularly proud of that. But it is also one of our nation's most segregated cities. It is one of our nation's fastest growing cities, but we also see rampant growing inequality and economic disparities in our city. So we have to ask ourselves this question, how do we look at the things that might cause us despair 
and see reasons for hope? How do we take the world as it is and imagine what it could be? In other words, how, how do we stare into the darkness and see the dawn? In my own life, the most powerful ways to see that light has been to live by it, has been to see it through the arts. When I was a child growing up, I was a little boy in a town called Ames, Texas in Liberty County, population 1,400. It was the Negro town that was adjacent to Liberty, the county seat. My grandmother worked as a domestic for a family in River Oaks, a well-to-do family just a couple of blocks away from the Manils. She, on occasion, would bring their discards home, and sometimes I'd get the bounty. Among the bounty, occasionally, were these remarkable books, these art books and shelter magazines and programs from cultural events the family had attended. I pored over the pages of these books and magazines and programs. Hour after hour, my mind visited worlds which I otherwise would have been excluded from. In many ways, because of the arts, my economic situation never limited my expectations of what my life could be. The arts broadened my horizons, my very sense of what was possible for me in life. So I am a fervent believer in the transformational potential of the arts. And indeed, our dear Sissy said something 30 years ago in a reflection on feminism that I'd like to share. Here's what Sissy said. Imagination invites one to envision possibilities other than the status quo. We have had the expansion of respectable thought to include imagination and vision. Actually, they offer world peace in the only place world peace can begin, in the heart, in the mind, and the dream. In other words, the only place that peace and justice can begin is in our hearts and in our minds. It's no coincidence that Dr. King's most famous speech begins with a dream. It's no coincidence that artists and activists both envision and enact possibilities other than the status quo. And it's no coincidence that at the Ford Foundation, when we talk about supporting visionaries on the front lines of social change, we put artists at the center, those artists who push us to think radically and deal with uncomfortable reality, uncomfortable truths. These artists who interrogate the world as it is and how it could be. And throughout our history, throughout our history, we have seen artists, cultural leaders, 
and their ideas together play an integral role in building a wide range of social movements from the civil rights movement in the United States to the Arab Spring in the Middle East and beyond. Now the reasons for this are many, but among them is something simple and profound. Art not only creates feelings of possibility, it also engenders feelings of empathy. Mrs. Menil once wrote, through art, God constantly clears a path to our hearts. And Roscoe put it differently. He said, the people who weep before my pictures are having the same religious experience I had when I painted them. But he added, if you are moved only by their color relationships, then you miss the point. Because for Rothkoe, the issue was not color relationships, but rather human relationships. The relationships between artist and observer, between people who share an experience of a particular painting, a photograph, a performance, and who live with a shared and expanded understanding of the world. And in this way, the point of all of our work in art and in social justice is creating these human relationships. It's opening up our imaginations so that we can experience and see ourselves in the place of others, understand their experience, and hopefully improve it and make it better. Of course, we have to also work for adequate representation. We have to model the equality we wish to see in our world and elevate voices and visions different from our own. When the Menils opened their revolutionary art exhibit at the Deluxe Theater 45 years ago, one of the first racially integrated contemporary art exhibits in the country, they opened up perspectives for Texas and the world. And in turn, they did for Texas what art can do for the world. They took their privilege, they took their great privilege and wealth and turned it into a public good. And now we can enjoy their creation, their collection, which has enlarged our collective consciousness. When Mrs. Menil put together her seminal volume, volumes, the image of the black in Western art, here's what she said. These volumes are for all those who need to know about the past in order to keep fighting for the present and the future. And so we keep fighting, dear friends. When Sissy Farenthal helped women in that peace tent in Nairobi express joy through music and art, she helped us recognize our interconnectedness and our shared humanity. And when she told gay rights activists here in Houston, no one is free unless we all are free, she expressed the kind of empathy required to bring people together and to build movements. These 
two incredible women, Dominique and Sissy. Each in her own way have held that mirror, held that mirror up to society and forced us, demanded of us, and challenged us to imagine a better world, even when others have turned away. And some of you know the story. In 1969, not long after Dr. King was assassinated, the Menils wanted to donate a great sculpture by the artist Barnett Newman. It's called the Broken Oblisk. They wanted to donate it to the city in honor of Dr. King. At the time, the city refused their gift. Not long after, they brought the sculpture here to the Rothko Chapel. It's not out there tonight because I understand that it is being restored. And that is a good thing. We all could use a little restoration every now and then. <laughs> but this is a great work of art. And if you have seen it, its greatness is clear and present. While some might see the broken Iblis and think that it's broken, when I see it, I believe it's simply incomplete because there is so much more work to be done. So whether it's Dr. King or Mrs. Manil or Sissy Farenthal or any of the other visionaries and artists who are fighting for social justice here in Houston and throughout the world, we know by reason and by intuition that art has a role in advancing justice in the world. As Dr. King himself once said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And it's incumbent upon us to remember, especially remember during times like this, that division and bigotry and racism and blame and ignorance cannot, will not make a nation great. Only empathy can do that. So without art, my friends, there is no empathy. And without empathy, there is no justice. But with all of us working together, we can make our vision into a reality, a vision. We can make those human connections and achieve justice once and for all. And we can march proudly, proudly together out of the darkness and into the dawn, a dawn we have imagined and brought into being and brightened for one another. Thank you so much for honoring me by your invitation. And I'd now like to invite my dear friend, Dr. Sarah Lewis to join me on stage. such an extraordinary privilege and honor. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you here today about 
an urgent topic, art and social justice, but I first just want to thank you for your extraordinary leadership and what you model for us at this time, and also want to thank Sissy Farenthold for your leadership. It is no coincidence that it is the occasion of us honoring leaders that we are able to speak about this topic of art and social justice because it takes leadership. This is a difficult, difficult topic. So thank you to the Rothko Chapel for offering us this extraordinary opportunity and the Rappaport Center as well. We are here in what I find to be a place that embodies the kind of openness that's required for us to understand what cultural equity is about. So I wondered before we, we go into what are a vast range of topics, if we could first situate the conversation here in Texas by asking really what, and you spoke about it in your speech a bit, what was it about your life in Ames or at the University of Texas or later in your life that oriented you to seeing the way in which the arts could help us move past inequity? Well, I, I was very lucky because I, as, as you know, I, I went to public schools, I went to a great public university, and I was always given the opportunity to see great art mm -hmm. and to understand the context of art in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a huge leveler for me to understand uh, art and particularly to see the role of artists of color which I discovered both the visual arts, but also the performing arts. Mm -hmm. When I was in college, uh, having access to a, a great college art mu yeah. museum, yeah. A, a great fine arts center where you could see Dance Theater of Harlem, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. where I saw for the first time For Colored Girls. Oh, and yeah. uh, I mean, yeah. these things that I, had the opportunity to be exposed to mm -hmm. that made it possible for me to understand these themes of justice mm -hmm. because so much of what I was experiencing was about justice. Yeah. And so when I saw uh, there was a show of Jacob Lawrence prints mm -hmm. and they were prints, I mean, they, they were nice prints, but they were prints, but it didn't matter. <laughs> what I actually experienced was, was, you know, in Austin, Texas seeing Jacob Lawrence and understanding how, how he was expressing mm -hmm. the experience of being a black man mm -hmm. and being terrorized mm -hmm. in the American South mm -hmm. and actually having to leave yeah. and what that migration was about. And so on the one hand, you see these beautiful paintings, mm -hmm. but you understand that the context was really about justice. Right. Right. And and when I saw Dance Theater of Harlem for the first time, of course there's Balanchine and the beauty and the costumes and the set and the Russian music and it's mm -hmm. all, but it was about justice. Yeah. It was because, because Arthur Mitchell couldn't find a company that like, would take black dancers. Right. Right. And he finally gave up and said, I'm just gonna start my own dance company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of this was you know, one might say, oh, that's about the arts. But mm -hmm. when you peeled the veneer back, it was really about dealing with inequality mm -hmm. and justice in our society. Mm -hmm. You recently have set out a bold new vision for philanthropy for the Ford Foundation and I think as an example, really, for the field at large. 
you've argued that you find that the aim of philanthropy is justice. And I, I think it's appropriate to read the framing remarks that you chose in your recent New York Times op-ed, thinking about this idea, which are attributed to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Not long before his assassination, you quoted him as saying, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice, which make philanthropy necessary. So I wonder if you could speak a bit more about the ideas that inspired you to reframe Ford's focus around social justice and the role of the arts in this. Well, I think, you know, when I wrote that piece for the Times, yeah. it was during the holidays. And uh -huh. I, you know, when you live in New York during the holidays, it's, you know, a very joyous season. Yeah. And, you know, it's just very joyous. And you walk up and down the streets and yeah. there's Salvation Army and there are trees everywhere. And, yeah. you know, it's people from all over the world or in New York, especially during the holiday season. And, and you can feel good about yourself because mm -hmm. a lot of people wait until the end of year and we, you know, write checks yeah. and give, yeah. and, you know, you put your money before you go into Bloomingdale's, you know, into the Salvation Army camp, and, you know, so you feel really good about yourself. <laughs> and and what, I, what I was interrogating was how privileged people like me think that think that we are doing something really powerful mm -hmm. when we're not, mm -hmm. when, that we're doing something um, philanthropic. Mm -hmm. I think we are certainly helping ameliorate something so you give money so that there are hopefully fewer homeless people. Or, but we're not, we're not engaged in the deeper questions. Mm -hmm. And so what I, was, what I was challenging myself and others to do was to move from this idea of generosity mm -hmm. to the idea of justice. Yes. Because generosity, yes. in some ways, is about us, mm -hmm. right? We mm -hmm. feel good when we put money or we write a check, mm -hmm. right? We, f we feel good. Mm -hmm. Justice actually demands more of us. Actually, yeah. justice makes us feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and demands that, we, in, that, that yeah. we interrogate. So it's not enough to say, you know, put money into the Salvation Army sort of bucket. It's mm -hmm. the sense of rage yeah. that you should feel that you're standing on the corner of 72nd and 5th Avenue and you're looking at apartments that sell for $100 million and there's homeless people on the park, on the corner of 72nd and 5th across mm -hmm. the street. Mm -hmm. And so it, justice demands that we ask ourselves, why do we live in a country where this exists? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do we demand of ourselves the kind of behavior that makes us really uncomfortable with this? Mm -hmm. and, and that's really hard. And that's what justice is about. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the arts, what the arts does in this regard is that the arts, and this is what artists do better than anyone, mm -hmm. and that is that aspect of holding the mirror up. Yes. Because artists have a, yes. bring a perspective of, of rawness yes. to our lived experience mm -hmm. because they themselves are often so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. and, and so we need them to hold those mirrors up because that's what yes. Jacob Lawrence was yes. doing. Mm -hmm. He was saying, you know, hey, America, you think you're great, 
but hear my story. Yes. There are millions of black people like mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. who are being terrorized in this country mm -hmm. before your very eyes and you seek to ignore us. Right. So artists do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we need artists. Mm -hmm. to, if, we, if we think it's possible to have justice, we've got to have art and artists. Absolutely. You know, this might be a good time, in fact, to read what James Baldwin had to say about this exact topic. My you know. favorite. He's my very favorite. Yeah. I, yes. James Baldwin, I, you know, I discovered, I, you know, when I, again, in college, yeah. I, because, you know, growing up in small town Texas, you know, you don't exactly have the Harlem Renaissance reader as your guide in high school. <laughs> and, and so in college in Austin, you know, I got yeah. the Harlem Renaissance reader and oh, it's when I, you know, first started reading Baldwin and Zornell and yeah. I mean, everyone. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and it just was transformational. And he, of course, not surprisingly, is my favorite yeah. because he's so radical and he's so bad ass. Yeah, yeah. He's just he's amazing. A, he's extraordinary. I in the creative process, the 1962 essay, he says, there are forever swamps to be drained, cities to be created, mines to be exploited, and children to be fed. None of these things can be done alone, but the conquest of the physical world is not man's only duty. He's enjoined to conquer the great wilderness of him or herself. The precise role of the artist then is to illuminate that darkness, blaze roads through vast forest, so that we will not, in all our doing, lose sight of its purpose, which is, after all, to make the world a more human dwelling place. Yes, because he felt that America, certainly while he was growing up, mm -hmm. as a very disaffected yeah. and, shall we say, unusual boy, mm -hmm. and as then a young gay man mm -hmm. living in New York and traveling the South, yeah. he felt that it was in fact a very dark world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that as he, I think, realized his gift, mm -hmm. he really chose to use literature as a way of shedding light. Yeah. And his own just inimitable voice uh, and, and you know, those Oxford debates mm -hmm. and you know, the Dick Cavett show mm -hmm. and all of those things where he just, made people, made white people feel really uncomfortable. Right, because right. he was, he was speaking truth. Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. was in, in the most intelligent, mm -hmm. engaging yeah. and charming and brilliant and rage-filled way. Right. He, was, he was demanding that the country look at itself. Yes, yes. This is the work of what you've, you've cited in, in many speeches, really, that Audre Lorde describes as excavating honesty. This idea that the artist holds a mirror. James Baldwin might call the artist a, in a position of being in a lover's quarrel with the world, right? So, does James Baldwin, do other artists get us to see distinctions between equality and diversity and justice? Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting when you think about Langston Hughes, uh -huh. you know, in his great poem, asking, you know, yes. will America be America? Mm. When, I mean, embedded in this idea is, is something that wasn't used as a term then, but today, I think when we talk about equity, uh -huh. I think it is, uh, I actually, I believe that the idea of diversity has become so trivialized. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mm -hmm. even like using that word. Yeah, tell me why. Because 
Diversity is really about, it again is uh, a way of being generous. Because mm -hmm. diversity in some ways reifies and concretizes mm -hmm. our historic racialized hierarchy in this country. Mm -hmm. and, and so diversity is really about saying in some ways, please let us in. Right. Um, and so diversity is about saying, well, we're the museum, we've got 20 trustees, and we've got two African-Americans, clap, clap, clap. And we feel really good about things that we're gonna keep trying to get more. Equity is saying, we have been transformed as an institution because we have representation mm -hmm. and because we have mm -hmm. given their voice a priority of, for understanding how we achieve our mission as a museum. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very different, uh, I think that's a very different philosophy, it's mm -hmm. a very different way to engage, and it's much more difficult. Equity yeah. is much harder mm -hmm. to get at, in part because people like to, well, people who don't want to engage, often misconstrue and purposely appropriate the word in a wrong way. And uh -huh. so equity doesn't mean that everyone is equal and that, right. that we, are, mm -hmm. we are ensuring some outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does mean though that there is a, a, a sort of a priori analysis of something fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what's hard. Yeah. That's what's hard for privileged people yeah. and privileged institutions in this country to do. Yeah because the great institutions in this country, whether they be museums or institutions of higher ed, elite colleges, mm -hmm. uh, are, or certain parks, and they weren't constructed to serve us. Right. I mean, they right. weren't, I mean, you know, you're a graduate of Harvard, I'm a graduate yeah. of the University of Texas, yeah. When those institutions were created, mm -hmm. you and I were not yeah. the oh, profile yeah. of the oh, student yeah. they anticipated oh, yeah. having. Oh, yeah. and, 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 that, and the amazing thing about this country uh -huh. and what does make it great mm -hmm. is that the capacity to continue to evolve mm -hmm. and to mm -hmm. correct mm -hmm. and to recognize the deficiencies mm -hmm that keep us from actualizing our ideals mm -hmm. to drive ourselves towards that. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's hard okay. because these institutions struggle with mm -hmm. how to evolve and how to also though maintain the kind of uh, historic kind of sense of who they're serving. And that's yes. what's really hard. Yes. It's, it's very hard. I mean, I, I, I now, I mean I, I mean, I know what it is like to be privileged. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to have power. Yeah. And, and it's really good for those of us who have it. <laughs> no, I, and I, I mean that to say that it is, it is the question of what do we do with our privilege? Exactly. How do we use our privilege mm -hmm. to tear down those barriers yep. 
You know, when yeah. David Bowie was one of my favorite artists, and I'll never forget Bowie's interview in MTV. Mm -hmm. uh, MTV mm -hmm. had, was desperate to yeah. get Bowie, and as right. you, well, you wouldn't remember, you weren't even born no, yet. But, I've seen but this, though. MTV, I've seen this clip, I know. MTV, <laughs> uh, in the early years, they didn't pay, play black artists. I mean, they only played yeah. Michael Jackson. I mean, they mm -hmm. would play a few, but there right. were. And so they finally got Bowie to come on, yeah. uh, on air, and so they got him, and they were all so excited, and yeah. They asked him a question about his album, and he, and he answered. And then they were going on mm -hmm. to another question. And he stopped the interviewer, and he said, I have a question for you. Why don't you have black artists on MTV? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I remember and yeah. the interviewer was so shell-shocked by yeah. the question that it led to this conversation where basically mm -hmm. he, he blurted out that the suits in corporate headquarters just weren't comfortable with, with uh, that idea. But uh -huh. it was an example yeah, of, yeah. of a very privileged white man mm -hmm. using his privilege mm -hmm. to call out injustice yeah. in an industry yeah. that he believed was racist. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so we all, those mm -hmm. of us who are in positions of privilege, mm -hmm. are all called upon oh, yeah. to sometimes say, you know, and I'm constantly in my own head because yeah. I find myself, myself in lots of spaces and places yes. with people who are very privileged, mm -hmm. people who are wealthy, people who are powerful, people who mm -hmm. have tremendous influence. Mm -hmm. And I am often astounded mm -hmm. by their, their sense of satisfaction with their own success. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's part of that's what, so uh, if you're really interested in engaging, that self-satisfaction mm -hmm. is far more muted mm -hmm. because, because it requires an interrogation of the system that produced yeah. the outcomes that made it possible for you mm -hmm. to come to New York and 20 years later be a billionaire mm -hmm. at age 45 mm -hmm. yeah. without creating a job except for the 20 people who work at your hedge fund or whatever. <laughs> And, and so there's this real question about how do we interrogate privilege? Yeah. And that requires of the privileged mm -hmm. uh, a willingness. And that's really hard in mm -hmm. our democracy mm -hmm. because we, we pride ourselves in this narrative mm -hmm. of meritocracy mm -hmm. and freedom. Yeah. And that is partially true, yeah. but it's partially a fiction, mm -hmm. and particularly for powerful, successful people, mm -hmm. that's a very difficult narrative mm -hmm. to disrupt. Yeah. Because, because we want to believe that I did all of this on my own, or that the person who didn't succeed, didn't succeed because of their own personal bad choices. Mm -hmm. And that, and that I succeeded because, you know, I didn't do a lot of drugs or I didn't get caught for doing a lot of drugs. I didn't get a, you know, a, a girl pregnant. I mean, all those things that you yeah, hear yeah. people, I've heard people when I challenge them, I hear, you know, tick off all these things that are part of the narrative as to mm -hmm. why, you know, they're successful. Mm -hmm. um, but I just think that it's, it's really hard mm -hmm. and, and because the, the, narrative is, the narrative is so embedded in our collective psyche yeah. that 
that we are the land of opportunity, that we mm -hmm. are this great nation and yes. American exceptionalism, yes. some of that is true. But it's even if you look at how our history is, is narrated, mm -hmm. it's narrated from this romanticized idea that our founding fathers were in some way saints or something. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's and it's it's really interesting to to see just the difference in how one would see. I mean yeah. when I see the founding fathers, I see the most amazing, brilliant greatness ever to walk the planet. And I also see evil. Mm -hmm. I see mm -hmm. I see contradictions to that greatness mm -hmm. in the fact that you could own another human being mm -hmm. and feel no sense of immorality about that. Yeah. Um, and so it's, the, it's, it's grappling and being comfortable with owning that history that is hard, I think, you know, for a lot of us. I mean, mm -hmm. it's hard. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're singing, you know, the Star Spangled Banner and, you know, Francis Scott Key was a slave owner, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. there's something really yeah. confounding about mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we've got these great yeah. magic, yeah. majestic words that lift us and we soar. And then we say, oh, but by the way, dot, 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 you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's mm -hmm. the challenge. Exactly. There's so much to be said about this topic, and with our limited time, I just want to make sure we get somehow to the heart of, I think, what creates some of the urgency. And you've honed in on this idea of inequity being created by narratives, right, that prevent us from seeing the full scope uh, and the tensions, right, in our human foundations. Part of why we can turn on the news and see great inequity is because we are misperceiving each other because of these narratives we're looking through. One of, an example is right in front of you, I think, yes. of uh, the May way. I hold this <laughs> the, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. We'll Vision about, and justice. I want to talk yes, about it. Let's talk about it <laughs> as it relates to inequity and uh, really looking at the difference between inclusion diversity and inequity, right? What did it mean for Aperture to oh open up their magazine, their publishing house? This is the nonprofit devoted to history of photography, one of the preeminent organizations in America for this. Decided to create an issue that, that I was asked to guest edit, focused on ostensibly African-American photography, but really it was a decision on the part of Chris Booth, the founder, and the, um, Michael Famigetti, the chief editor-in-chief, to reconsider what it means to not have African-American photography at the center of this enormous organization, right? We launched this at the Ford Foundation, this issue, it sold out in seven weeks, faster than 20,000 copies in seven weeks. They just went on stands again last week and sold 400 copies in one day. On the pages here is this, this aggregate of poets and scholars and incredible writers from Claudia Rankin, Margot Jefferson, Henry Louis Gates, um, Carrie Mae Weems, Latoya Ruby Frazier, just this distillation of the counter narratives we don't often see, right? And the question has become, my, my colleague Skip Gates, for example, just asked me, why do you think there's such appetite for this, right? What does it say that there was such a rapid response and uptake on the part of institutions, museums, educational groups. What does it say? And I think I'm sort of 
asking about this because I think it gets to the need to go beyond diversity, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think what it says is there is such a hunger for visual imagery that reflects America. Yeah. And that so much, mm -hmm. I mean, I love Aperture and they, as you say, are the, I mean, they're the most prestigious publication of its kind on yeah. photography. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's an amazing publication and you did just an absolutely brilliant job of curating this issue. Mm -hmm. And I think, it, uh, I think it's brilliant. As you know, as I've said to you, my challenge with issues like this mm -hmm. is that we let institutions off the hook because a cynic would say, mm -hmm. this, my dear, is Negro History Month. Right. Right. And, right. and mm -hmm. we're well beyond that mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so we shouldn't have to mm -hmm. wait exactly. until June yeah. of 2016. Mm -hmm. And I guess we'll have to wait again until June of 2017 to have another issue because that's diversity. Right. Equity is when, when we open the pages and we see pictures of the artists yeah. and the journalists yeah. writing about the artists and they actually look like America. Right. Because mm -hmm. what you see when you open it, mm -hmm. most issues mm -hmm. are primarily white people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. while I think uh, there are remarkable uh, white artists mm -hmm. and white curators and editors. Mm -hmm. There are also people like you. Yeah. And many people who, if given the opportunity to have their talents profiled, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they may not have the networks. They, yeah. I mean, the privilege right. that you have used right. because of mm -hmm. your really Harvard, Yale, Oxford, I mean, <laughs> connections. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you know, Sarah, yeah. I mean, the fact that you have what you have done is not, you have carried the burden uh -huh. that those of us who are often the first or the only one in the room yeah. are often forced to carry. Mm. And that is mm -hmm. to actually have to make the case exactly. Exactly. to that this shouldn't be an anomaly. That's right. And when they, That's right. and that, I mean, most people didn't even know what Aperture was know, until you did this, okay? <laughs> and so, and so the level of critical acclaim from the Times to the New Yorker to every art magazine to so many, as a result of this, pub, it should be an indication to them. And this is what's so shocking and so frustrating sometimes. Exactly. It shouldn't take much more for them to be transformed, right? right? I mean, right. They, should, they should go back and ask themselves, right. like, what just happened here? <laughs> like, what just happened? I think they have. We brought, you know, yeah. this brilliant black curator in and like said to her, it's your issue. Mm -hmm. You do whatever you want to mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. And it like has gotten more critical acclaim, more attention, more coverage. Yeah. So wouldn't you mm -hmm. think mm -hmm. that, that they, they would. would say, wow, I mean, it's, yeah. it's what I've yeah. said to MoMA mm -hmm. uh, with Jacob Lawrence, right. as you know, which another show you participated yeah. in, yeah. you know, that show, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. so fundamentally disrupted the leadership at MoMA right. because, I mean, they have never had that many black people in that museum mm -hmm. in a year that they right. had in one night, I right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. the opening of Jacob Lawrence, I mean, was... people 
all sorts of people you and I know, I mean, mm -hmm. walked up to me and said, I've never experienced this at MoMA. Yep. I've just never had, an, I mean, a, a, an evening like this at MoMA. And then all of the programs around it mm -hmm. that, and, it, and, and I think it did. I mean, I don't yeah. know if it fundamentally did anything, right. but I know yeah, it, it caused people to say, There's, we could be doing more things like this. Absolutely. And the museum would look different. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would mm -hmm. look more like America. Mm -hmm. And that actually would be in the service of our mission. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, and I think when I was at MoMA curating, I would walk around and the guards would give me fist bumps, really, because I was one of the well, of only, course. you know. They the would give you fist bumps because there was nobody else there. <laughs> because there was no one except else. Except the guards. Exactly. Who are African American. Exactly. Except I mean, which is the, the way it is at most. I mean, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was I very mean, sweet. But the, so this issue, though, you say it, it is a matter of using privilege as a platform to open up these different doors. I should say, though, in, in honor to the person who really inspired me to do this work, I would not have been able to. Um, of course, my parents played a large role, but if not from this example my grandfather set. Mm. My grandfather was a painter and a jazz musician and, and a janitor by day, you know, supporting my, my family. But he was expelled from high school for asking where African-Americans were in history books. He was told that we had done nothing to merit inclusion mm -hmm. and was expelled for his impertinence and mm -hmm. asking. And he felt that his pride was so wounded he didn't want to go back to high school, but he began to paint. And there is Kahende Wiley, but there is also my grandfather, Shadrach Emanuel Lee, who mm -hmm. painted where he knew he could find us, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. These genre paintings of African-Americans. And I, as a young girl, I just wondered, why did my grandfather with this kind of activist history become an artist, not mm -hmm. a politician or not mm -hmm. an activist? And I now understand, right. you know, I'm sitting here because I now understand, right. Right. so. Let's talk about the work of these other visionary artists. You know, there, there are many who are doing work that are helping us to see these counter narratives mm, mm. or are partnering with artists, yes. you know, from a yes. Brian Stevenson and Michael sure. Murphy and, sure. and Mark Bradford. What are the different models that you're seeing that animate your anticipation and excitement for projects to come at this nexus of art and social sure. justice? I mean, I think what Brian Stevenson is doing uh, and Brian Stevenson is um, a leader of an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative in mm -hmm. Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. And he uh, wrote a best-selling book called Just Mercy uh, that mm -hmm. is about his representation of um, innocent African-American men in the South who all were on death row and all were innocent. And it's a powerful book and it was a yeah. Times bestseller and uh, Brian, uh, has uh, mm. attempted and I think will be successful mm. in uh, erecting um, a museum yeah. that artists are helping him design mm -hmm. and, and actually curate mm -hmm. that really focusing, focuses on our country's history of lynching. Yep. Yep. And as a Southerner, as mm -hmm. someone in the South, mm -hmm. the thing that he realizes often is that there are all these markers, cultural markers, uh -huh. to the Confederacy yes. and to white supremacy yeah. that existed and that people mm -hmm. across the South, I mean, you, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm mm -hmm. from the South, they're everywhere, mm -hmm. and, and that's a part of our history. Right. And Brian has no problem with their being everywhere. He just believes, as I do, that we need to tell the full history. Mm -hmm. And so he's not calling for them to be taken down. He's simply mm -hmm. saying, we need to mark other important cultural events. Mm -hmm. Lynchings mm -hmm. were cultural events. Yes. I mean, yes. They yeah. were a form of whites 
invoking uh, justice yeah. as they saw it, mm -hmm. but they were also cultural phenomena mm -hmm. where people would turn up like picnics. Right. And, right. And, and so what he is doing is he has uh, researched and found the sites of well over 500 lynchings mm -hmm. across the South. And he has taken the soil uh, under the trees where these men were lynched mm -hmm. and hung, and he is putting uh, their names on, he's putting them into large glass canisters, yeah. and there will be the names of every man who was lynched. And the museum will obviously include uh, our history, mm -hmm. but it will also recognize uh, these men who were lynched. Yeah. And it will include uh, art by young African-American contemporary artists yeah. who address the issue mm -hmm. of lynching and history and justice mm -hmm. and, and I think connect our historic mm -hmm. marginalization of African-American men mm -hmm. to what we see in society today. Mm -hmm. This project is actually there. My students at Harvard will hear about it. Michael Murphy is going to come present it oh, he's um, brilliant. To, to the class. He's so great. There are many different sort of cultural narratives that these different projects deal with. Mark Bradford's another artist. There's oh, a question. Mark's great. Yeah. I think what Mark is doing in Los Angeles is, is just brilliant because mm -hmm. he is a particular kind of artist working in South Central yeah. LA mm -hmm. who has created something called art and practice. Yeah. And Mark is, uh, runs a community, a large community program for young people mm -hmm. uh, in South Central, and he has job training, job mm -hmm. placement, mm -hmm. educational support. And what he does, though, is use, I mean, Mark recognizes that as a young African-American artist yeah. who's, I mean, his last painting, I mean, at Phillips, I think it went for three million. I mean, mm -hmm. his, his work mm -hmm. now, of mm -hmm. course, is just completely, yeah, uh, he's done so well, yeah. but yeah. he, he uses that yep. to engage mm -hmm. in the community. Exactly. And he uses his privilege because he's representing the U.S. at, yeah. the, at the Venice mm -hmm. Biennale next year. Yep. And he is, you know, I mean, he's number one on, he's in, the, in our new embassy in London. He's oh, got this huge installation mm -hmm. in, the, in the foyer of that. And he rec recognizes. But mm -hmm. what Mark does is to say, all right, I'm a pretty privileged artist. Yeah. Um, but I'm not an artist who wants to lock myself up in a studio, right. and that's fine for some mm -hmm. artists, mm -hmm. but he actually believes that he needs to be on the street. Mm -hmm. And so he's deeply engaged in a practice of bringing young people yeah. in that community together and lifting them up and mm -hmm. giving them opportunity and using, I mean, he, you know, I said to him at one point, well, mm -hmm. Mark, the Ford Foundation, we'd be happy to help you with, and he said, I don't need your money, I'm gonna sell a painting. I mean, I, <laughs> keep your money, give it to someone. I mean, you know, I mean, what artists when you, when you say that to yeah. them? And, and that, but that's his view. Yeah. He, he, yeah. he was really clear, yeah. you know, I'll sell mm -hmm. a painting, I'll get $500,000, and then I'll figure out what I'm gonna do with it yeah. here in the community. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's, that's a particular kind of, of engagement, mm -hmm. and it's true, not a lot of artists, but it doesn't have to be at that scale. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we're seeing that, the Astor Gates, and yeah. you know, as you know, on the south side of Chicago is yeah. doing something that is in some ways akin to what Mark is doing in South Central. But yeah. there's a community. Yeah. I mean, you've got Rick Lowe here in mm -hmm. Houston. I mean, mm -hmm. there's just remarkable, remarkable people. Absolutely. 
Hank Willis-Thomas is another example. He's worked the Question Bridge project is now on view at the New Smithsonian Museum for African-American History and Culture. October, well, September 24th marked the opening at the museum. One of your heroes, mine too, John Lewis, created a bill that resulted in this museum's opening. What's the significance of the museum's opening to you on Washington Mall? Well, you know, I think one of the great privileges of, of my life was uh, being at the dedication. Yeah. Um, the President and Mrs. Obama had a, a lovely reception at the White House before, and, um, and then we, we were at the ceremony, and it was just really profound to hear the President's uh, remarks, because he talked about what it was like to fly over in Marine One mm -hmm. from the White House when he was going out to Andrews to fly somewhere, mm -hmm. and how over his period he saw this mm -hmm. thing that was a hole in the ground become this jewel of a museum, and what it meant to him as president, and what it would mean to him when he hopefully gets to yeah. take his grandchildren to, uh, mm -hmm. to see it years uh, from now. And, and it was just a profound moment to have him and John Lewis uh, speaking and to have George W. Bush who signed the legislation. Mm -hmm. exactly. He was the president That's who right. actually told uh, the Republican leadership that he wanted that bill yeah. to uh, allocate the funds mm -hmm. uh, for half of the museum, mm -hmm. and the other half of the of 250 million was raised privately. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. it, it's a profound statement about, about the centrality of our history to this narrative mm -hmm. and how the corrective action that, that this museum represents yes. and the, the explicit acknowledgement mm -hmm. that American history, and certainly the history as it has been told on the mall, mm -hmm has been insufficient and incomplete, mm -hmm. and that now it is closer to being complete mm -hmm. as a result of this museum. Mm -hmm. You've called art spaces at times a forums of neutrality, you know, offering us a space to have difficult conversations. I, I think this embodies one such space, but also mm -hmm. offers us the history that we need to realize the urgency of that type of conversation. President Obama, in those remarks, also commented on the paradox that we find ourselves in, the opening of such a museum, but also the vivid display of massive inequity, right, um, to do with police fatalities. So I wonder, before we, we open up to questions, if you would just maybe say a few words about what you think the importance of visual literacy is for global citizenship right now. I mean, I, I truly do believe this point about empathy and justice mm -hmm. is so important mm -hmm. because it is, uh, it is through empathy that we have the capacity mm -hmm. to put ourselves in the shoes of others. Mm -hmm. what, what is often so difficult is how hard it is for people to do that mm -hmm. for, because it is much easier to to live in a binary world. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly politically expedient. Mm -hmm. And so you're either for something right. or you're against something. There is no gray area. Mm -hmm. And in fact, gray area 
is where most problems are solved. And yet what we want, particularly our political leaders, is to be able to just see things in, in such dichotomies mm -hmm. that are absolutely false mm -hmm. and harmful. And yet we need our brains, mm -hmm. our brain needs to sort. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's easier for our brain because there's less, com less complexity. Right. And, and global citizenship and understanding that there are others in the world who matter mm -hmm. and, that, and that we need to understand requires us to, to do things that as a country we have, we have been challenged to mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. To be humble, mm -hmm. to listen, to not be self-centered. I mean, these are things that we have been in the world and we've done great things in the world, but we also have not achieved our goals often because we couldn't listen. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that in my own institution. When I mm -hmm. look over the history of the Ford Foundation, there were absolutely occasions when mm -hmm. we said, you know, this is what those Africans need to develop their economies. Mm -hmm. They need this and this and this. And so we decide that we're gonna send this and this and this over mm -hmm. to Kenya to solve Kenya's problems. Mm -hmm when what, you, what we should have done was to start by asking Kenyans, what do you think you need to solve this problem? Absolutely. And I think that that's the disconnect that's right. and that's the point of, of the lack of humility mm -hmm. and the arrogance that comes with mm -hmm. power and ignorance. Yes. And so you would put yes. people in charge of Africa who think, Africa is a country. Right. I mean, right. and right, and that, right. and that right. there, and 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 mm -hmm. and so, but that's what power mm -hmm. and arrogance mm -hmm. and privilege and yeah. wealth yeah. can do. Mm -hmm. Because who's going to stop you? Mm -hmm. I mean, who's going to tell you? And this is on a micro level. Yeah. I have experienced that. I walked into a room with a philanthropist, a, a, a young philanthropist, who says, "I want to do this and this and this," and you know, I found myself saying. You know, I'm going to do this and this and this, and I want to do this in Watts, I want to do this in Bed-Stein, I want to do... Yeah. And I asked myself, asked them, you know, who asked you to do that? I mean, who asked you to do that in Bed-Stein? Did anybody in Bed-Stein ask you to do that? Did, I mean, did you engage in a way that actually got you to that as the solution? Well, first, did you engage on what your diagnosis is of the problem? Because you might actually learn that what you think is the problem actually mm -hmm. isn't the problem. But I think that that's the real conundrum mm -hmm. because those of us who sit in positions of privilege and power often live lives where we aren't challenged, mm -hmm. where people don't say, you're wrong, mm -hmm. or that's a really stupid idea. Mm -hmm. Why would you, why would you, I mean, and I've seen that, I mean, I've, I mean, I've been at, a bo at board meetings, you know, of certain institutions and, you know, some very wealthy donor says, like, just the stupidest thing, you know? I mean, just makes the most ignorant comment at the board table. And, you know, no one says, you know, you know, that's a really stupid thing. Don't say that at this point, right? Or, or that's, you're not informed. I mean, you really need to go do your homework. But because they're privileged, no one, I mean, we just sort of look down or look at the ceiling or, you know, but no one like goes, you know what? 
we need yeah. to talk. Yeah. You know, you yeah. need to stop that because yeah. you're, yeah. you really aren't doing yourself a favor. Right. But so right. no one does that. And so right. they go off and do, or mm -hmm. they go off and say, I want, to. and I think that's one of the real challenges. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, I have to say the last time I was in a room like this was a civil rights school, the Highlander in Knoxville, Texas. Um, this round space reminds me of the power of that community and also the reminder that Highlander offered the nation, which is that the community that has a problem has the capacity to fix it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the philosophy there. So I'm very eager to hear what our audience here has to say and the questions I have for you. Um, I think we have ample time for questions, right? A few minutes, okay. We have two mics on either side in the aisles here. And if you will, I'm sorry? Yes, a question right here. Um, we'll have the mic run to you right here. If you could tell us your name, that would be great. My, my name is Mila Galavin, and I'm honored to be here and in your presence today. Well, I have a question about, I, I think that Slavery today still exists. There's about 46 million people who live in slavery today and about 3,200 people sold daily. And unfortunately, Texas is, I believe, number two by statistics and Houston's at the top of the list in terms of human slavery that exists today, specifically among women and children. And I think slavery today has diversified beyond just uh, a black yes. and white ish, uh, racial issue. It's very diversified. So what can we do, what can art do today mm -hmm. to build awareness to the slavery that exists today Absolutely. in our society? Absolutely. Great question. I mean, I think human trafficking and slavery, as you say, is a major challenge in the world. In fact, mm -hmm. I was uh, fortunate enough to be invited to the Vatican. The Pope had uh, a, a panel look at this issue and uh, generated a remarkable report that the Pope read, which had a sentence that said, human slavery is about sex, work, and organs. I mean, that mm. people are mm. being trafficked mm. for those mm. three things. Mm. And that, I mean, to have the Pope sort of read that, I mean, it was an mm -hmm. Italian and big, but still he was saying it. And I mean, is such a profound statement. And what mm -hmm. artists can do, and in fact, what artists are doing, are doing what they do, which is to hold up that mirror and to elevate issues that make us uncomfortable. So for mm -hmm. example, in New York, there is, something that a group of artists, photographers are leading called the abolitionist movement. And it is a group of, uh, of women and men in New York uh, who uh, a photographer, a group of photographers are photographing uh, both uh, uh, women and children because it's not, as you said, it's not just women it's, and it's not just females. Men and boys are also being trafficked, as you know. And are, and, and are using that, um, this abolitionist movement that is a group of artists to annually do uh, a, a, a book similar to this that, that visualizes for us what the victims look like. 
and also what the heroes, the people like you who are speaking up in places like this, saying, wake up, we have right here. I mean, and, and so in New York at the, the meeting that I attended, you know, there was a passionate uh, uh, speech uh, given by a photographer who said, right here in the Bronx, three subway stops away, there is trafficking going on. And, and so that's, and so it's influencing that discourse, it's holding the mirror up, it's going to the media, it's going to institutions and saying, you've got to do something about this and demanding accountability to look at these hugely problematic social trends mm -hmm. like trafficking. I mean, mm -hmm. in 2016, that there are millions of people around the world and it's because we've dehumanized ourselves into commodities. And so you can buy organs from people who, mm -hmm. who kidnap and take other people from other parts of the world for their organs so that you can go to Thailand or wherever where they've got lots of good hospitals that use other people's organs um, that have been trafficked. And mm -hmm. that that is happening is just shocking, but it is a very real um, thing today in the world. Mm -hmm. Many questions. Hi, Mr. Walker. Thank you so much for being here. Um, my name is Lindsay, and I like that you talk about rage <laughs> in the face of injustice. And I'm just curious, how do you balance that or channel that? And how do you see other people successfully navigating through their own rage? Well, I think that anyone who cares about justice today, regardless of your race or where you are in the world, every day is a calibration of both rage and hope. And, and I certainly every day in my head am having a conversation about how do I calibrate this today? How, how do I rationalize what I'm seeing in the world? And how do I manage to remain constructive mm -hmm. when you see the injustice that you see? And because, because we, we have to remain constructive, but we have to acknowledge that rage and, and the legitimacy and appropriateness of that rage and not be told that shame on you for, for being an angry black man or an angry black woman or an angry white woman or what, the, you know, that we actually, if we care about justice, we ought to feel rage. Uh, we ought to feel a lot of rage and we ought to talk about that rage with people uh, in, a, in a constructive way because I think we're not alone uh, in feeling that way. Mm -hmm. Maybe a way to also frame it is to think about how we transform heat into light. Right? Yes. You know, this is yes. so much of the work. It, it, is, in, it is indeed that, Sarah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. A few other questions. Yes. Good evening. Good evening. Um, once I want to say thank you for your presentation this, this evening and the Manil um, Foundation for doing this. I have a question that's been bothering me for quite a while. I was a member of many organizations during the 60s, the Panther Party and this party and SNCC and so forth. And there was a fundamental grassroots level 
introduction to people regarding whatever history. What's bothering me now is that in the last six months or so, in the state of Texas, we have people who are changing what history was, not only for African Americans, but for Me Mexicans too. We are putting books as being indentured servants instead of that we were brought here as slaves, and, and bringing the same type of attitude to the Mexican community. What does the role, what role does art have in helping us to present a true day-to-day living representation of what our history is. What role does art play in, in that translation between the 15-year-old today and the 15-year-old tomorrow? I think that's a great question. Mm -hmm. And I think artists, I mean, and, and this is, uh, artists have the, uh, the ability to uh, name and shame and frame these issues in ways that the rest of us don't. And what we hope, I mean, this is, this is what's also so uh, fundamentally challenging. We, in order for that to happen, we have to live in a society where artists are exalted, right? Where, where to be an artist uh, is an important uh, occupation. It's an important vocation. It's, it's not something for people who can't get a job. It's not something for people who couldn't major in accounting. Or, I mean, that, 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 that we, we relish in the idea that we live in a democracy that has a rich and vibrant and robust community of artists. Because we know that part of what will happen, if that happens, is that we will see the kinds of things that speak to the injustice that you just articulated. And, and so it's the circle of, mm -hmm. of, of the virtues of having artists. And, and that's really hard to do when the National Endowment for the Arts, because of politics, ends its mm -hmm. individual arts grants program. Mm -hmm. So individual artists used to be able to apply to the NEA and get a $25,000 grant. Mm -hmm. And some of you are artists, you know, $25,000 can go a long way when you're an artist. And so we don't have that anymore. Now, fortunately, a number of foundations, including the Ford Foundation, have created something called U.S. Artists, which today now gives away more money than, than, than the NEA ever gave away to individual artists unrestricted grants and, and without a concern about, you know, whether you're gonna do something controversial or not. But we need the program, so we need the philanthropists to say we should be supporting artists who are mm -hmm. doing, I mean, who, where are the Medici's? Where are the Rockefellers, the, the artists, the, the patrons, the Manils who supported artists, just individually supporting artists? in the, the way great wealth has done over centuries, in ways that contribute to the better of society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another question here. In the last couple of years, I have had the opportunity after moving into the city to engage with young artists. 
uh, they're dancers, they're painters. They are people who are doing everything from the African diaspora, dance, music. And, but when I go to their gatherings, they're usually a much younger generation. None of those people are here. How do we deal with the age divide? They're not interested in hearing what we have to say. They've totally checked us off, and they're going to do it their own way. And what I have said to them is, when I come here, I learn a lot, and it is good for me. But this needs to be a multi-generational conversation, and it needs to be a multi-generational movement. How do we get there? Well, I think another great question, and I think um, one of the things is that we have to recognize that every generation wants to do things their own way, and that we should actually validate that. And so that's great that they want to do it. The, the, the question is, how, what are the modalities that will make it possible for their ideas to be realized, for their ideas to be moved from the margins to the mainstream? And it may not be the kind of normative configurations that, that our generation has have thought of as the way to organize and mobilize, you know, make art, whatever. So we need to understand, right? I mean, it's something that I have learned through our engagement on, in the civil rights work. I mean, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, we had a particular point of view about how you supported community organizing, mobilizing. You know, you started an organization, you hired an executive director, you had a board, you had, you know, staff, you had millions of dollars of budgets, you had to fundraising. I mean, that was a modality. Well, today, young people don't want that. They will say, I mean, you know, we've, so, I remember, you know, when we started supporting Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. and I thought, well, are y'all gonna start an organization? Well, right. no, right. we don't want an organization. Right. Are you gonna have a headquarters? No, right. we don't want a headquarters. Right. Right. Who's the president? We don't have a president. Right. Who's your, we don't like your generation's like hierarchical, you know, Dr. King at the top and the rest of the, and the, the no, that doesn't, that's not, okay, well, tell us then what, how you're gonna get things done, right? And so having that conversation and making, what we can do is, is to help provide the resources that allows for this next generation to create their spaces. I mean, and so mm -hmm. this is what we did. The Ford Foundation did this in the 60s. We supported SNCC and the Freedom Riders and mm -hmm. these, these groups that would go off and make their parents crazy and do all kinds of things in the name of civil rights. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of, of the older generation at the Ford Foundation who thought we were way out, way, way, out of, uh, on, a, on a limb, including Henry Ford II. And so, yeah, I, I think we have, to, we have to give them space. Mm -hmm. I think we might have time for one final question from our colleague here. Uh, thank you both for being here. This is so wonderful. Thank you for using your platform of privilege to make us uncomfortable. I really appreciate that. <laughs> My question has to do with the shifting landscape of philanthropy mm -hmm. and what is happening, I work at a museum, what is happening in museums when donors, high profile privileged donors, take their toys and go home and create mm -hmm. their private institutions rather than sustaining public institutions, where will the next generation be able to go and be inspired if we don't have those donors there? So. 
I don't know exactly how to articulate it as a question, but I feel it's a crisis. And so I'm wondering if you, from your vantage point, also see this as a crisis and what could possibly be done for it? Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, they're like really amazing people in Houston. I know, West. Oh, I know. <laughs> that's why I didn't want to I mean, close down the I Q&A. Mean, that, that is a great question. Yeah. And I think for any museum curator, director, yeah. uh, this, your question uh, resonates. And it resonates with me because mm -hmm. I see it too. And I, uh, I think part of the challenge of growing inequality in this country is that institutions that are public institutions mm -hmm. that were created with a public mission are being disinvested in. And the level, and, and, and it's not that they're, I mean, your museum, I know, has got a much bigger budget, you've done, I mean, but the number, the number of people who, as you say, decide that they want to have their own museum um, is pretty remarkable. And I think it is fair to say that philanthropy has never in this country been fully a function of altruism. Mm -hmm. uh, John, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, yes indeed they wanted to ameliorate the conditions in the country at that time, but they also wanted to have a stable society where they could continue to make millions and millions. Andrew Carnegie was not just concerned about altruism. He knew that if he wanted workers for his factories, that they had to be literate. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so it has never all been about. And so the reality of vanity and narcissism and the sense of self-satisfaction that comes with, for some people with seeing their own name and their own vision is, uh, is highly valued by some philanthropy. And I do think that, you know, a generation ago, more people saw, you know, in a, you know, the historic encyclopedic museum in a city, or the you know contemporary or modern museum in a city, and it's really true that today, people you're seeing more of the individual uh, private house museums, and and in fairness, we've had them before. I mean, the Frick. Mm -hmm. I mean, Frick could have given all of those amazing, amazing Velasquez's and I mean, all of that good stuff in that to the Met. But, you know, he didn't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so it, this, I, don't wanna, I don't want to be too critical, but it's like everything in our society today, the just sheer numbers mm -hmm. of We've always had billionaires. It's just the sheer number today. And 
what is happening when, and what's being extracted from the middle class and working class so that we can have those billionaires. An economy that produces those outcomes makes it possible, therefore, for more people to say, I want to build a museum in my backyard um, or whatever, and not say, oh, well, I should give my collection to the city's museum, right? And, and so I think, I think it's, and it's really hard because who's going to tell this person that they're vain and a narcissist and that <laughs> they would be much better to give their wonderful collection because their answer would be, well, if I gave my collection to the museum of the city, you know, it's going to be shown, you know, 10% of the time. And I don't want my collection, you know, in some basement or in some storage. I want my collection on view. And no museum can, can give me that. So I'm going to build my own. And, and so it, it, it is this sort of uh, vicious sort of circle that we see uh, more and more of that I, I do find uh, that is problematic. And so, but this, this is the role, this is the role of artists. This is the role of our, um, of our institutions. And the thing we have to worry about and militate against is, is, is diminishing those institutions that we depend on and rely on to strengthen our democracy. Mm -hmm. And I gave a talk at Rice today, and one of the things mm -hmm. I was reflecting on with the president was how difficult it is to be a university president today, particularly well, at a public or a private institution. And, and I, was, I was reflecting on a conversation I had with the prominent university president, uh, uh, prominent university, and, and one of the things that, that this person said to me was, I really appreciated your commencement address, I don't know, two or three years ago somewhere, where I talked about inequality. And, and we had a really interesting conversation about inequality. And at some point I said, well, you know, that was the kind of speech that university presidents used to give. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they said to me, I could never give a speech like that. My, I have some trustees who would have my head. There is no way I could give that speech because I can't afford to offend those trustees, particularly if I'm going to have to go to them for a capital campaign gift. And I, and I sort of reflected on that and was just deeply dismayed because it's the university president who should give a speech and say, wake up, you vain, narcissistic, <laughs> I mean, wake up. I mean, right, it's, it's that, it's where, where who's, going to, who's going to put that into the public domain? Who is going to risk? And, and so that's what we need more of. And unfortunately, what I worry about is that we have less of it, that the institutions that our democracy relies on, the media, journalism, mm -hmm. universities, mm -hmm. all of the institutions, foundations, are, are not being as bold as our missions demand of us because we're worried. We're worried about not offending, or we're worried about not meeting some market uh, test uh, that brings a high return for some investor, right? That, that, that's what's driving the, 
diminishment of our institutions. Mm -hmm. And so we have to speak up and speak out. So thank you for that question. You know, one of the greatest joys I have is the introduction. One of the things I just don't like to do is the end. But the great thing here, and tonight in particular, is the conversation will continue. We have a reception prepared for everyone here uh, out on the plaza, so I hope you'll spend time together with one another, with our speakers, and we can keep the conversation going just a little bit longer. You started out with a list of uh, uh, images and descriptors of our great friend Sissy Ferenthal. I was thinking of some tonight of these two wonderful people on the stage tonight, conversationalist, creativist, uh, I think you, you did that, provocateur, uh, speaker in the first person, but I do want to say what a great conversationalist and thanks for your leadership. I just, thank you, Sarah. It makes it easy. <laughs> And Darren, I was thinking of one, one term. I don't even know if it's a term, but I thought tonight you're the chief uh, empathist. We hear an ethicist, but empathist. And I something like that, that idea. Yeah, that kind of helps all of us to realize it's also a vocation. And you use that word. You know, at the chapel, we use the term very often. Our vocation is both contemplation and action. And I think what you remind us so often, we're quick to talk, but not often quick to listen. And empathy, I think, is letting people speak in the first person unfettered and just taking it in. No matter what means he or she expresses the deepest things about being human. So thanks for reminding us that tonight. Before we conclude, I want to invite up our dear friend and my colleague and uh, collaborator, uh, Karen Engel for the Rappaport Center, who has a word for us. One lasting instruction I will give you is just simply, when you leave tonight, let us exit from the stage and then uh, enter by the, exit by the center aisles. It just helps with the flow and keeps us away from the, uh, this Rothko art that we don't want anybody to fall into, please. But Karen, please. <clears throat> well, what an evening. Um, so uh, I, I'm very proud of this partnership we have with the Rothko Chapel, and I want to thank, reiterate David's thanks to the many people who made tonight happen. Um, and I want to say I'm very proud of that partnership, but I also, as a professor at the University of Texas School of Law, have to say I'm proud um, very much to have two of our graduates um, very central to this program, um, Darren Walker and Sissy Farenthold. And we're ready, Sarah, for you to come to law school whenever <laughs> you, need a, you need a change. Um, All right. But uh, Darren and Sarah, uh, we said we were setting a high bar for you. And as um, David said at the beginning, I just want to repeat what, he, what this lecture is supposed to do, um, which is to inspire audiences to think and act creatively to respond to some of the greatest challenges of the 21st century. Um, and you all, that was a high bar. It was a bar that 
Sissy's legacy demands, um, and you have exceeded it beyond all imagination. Um, and among other things have really pushed us, challenged us to disrupt the narrative and see our own role in constructing the narrative as well. And I think um, that's one of the many um, terrific lessons that we'll take away, um, and hard lessons we'll take away. Um, so I just want to, um, as David said, we're going to have a reception outside. Um, that reception um, is uh, in, in honor of Sissy's birthday. Um, want to invite you all, so I want to point out that this is October 3rd, her birthday was yesterday, as Darren said. Um, so I want to invite you all to Austin around the same time next year um, for the third annual lecture in the series. Um, and we'll send you more information as that firms up, but it will be around this time of the year. Um, and I want to ask you to uh, join me in celebrating um, not just Sissy's birthday, um, but Sissy, and the conversations that she continues to inspire and will continue to inspire. So I'm not gonna make you sing or make you hear me sing, but I do hope that you'll join me in an applause um, for that and then join us outside. Yay.